Uh, well, we're going to take a, uh, a little break, uh, actually kind of a lo- little longer of a break from our First Corinthians series. Um, we are at a natural stopping point in the book that uh, we've been in since March of this year. Uh, coming up is, are the chapters on spiritual gifts. We will get to that in January. But we're going to take a couple months off. Um, we're going to take a few weeks and do some series on our core values starting today. And then we'll do a few series um, that are themed around Advent, Christmas, uh, as we lead up to Christmas. Christmas Day, if you didn't know, is on a Sunday. We will be gathering as usual on Sunday morning at 1030. Um, and we'll, we'll have a service that day as well. So today we're going to start with our core values. You might not know we have core values. We do have core values that we uh, put together when we were planting as a church. Um, They are gospel-centered, intentional community, missional living. Uh, I'm going to cover the first one today, uh, the second one next week, and then uh, Nate is going to cover the third one on the 27th of this month. Now, just a couple words on these. I will be the first to say that, that some of the terms in these core values have kind of been buzzwords in Christianity. So there was a phrase when everything was gospel-centered. If you wanted to write a book, you called it gospel-centered, fill-in-the-blank, parenting, eating, weightlifting, walking, hiking, whatever. Everything was gospel-centered. We love to throw around the word intentional to, to show that or to at least make it appear that we are being very thoughtful about what we're doing. And then missional is kind of just a weird word that kind of had a, a, a phase of popularity in certain circles. So part of the reason for us doing a series like this is just to define what we mean. Um, more than just attaching ourselves to certain movements or, or buzzwords. But to really explain who we are as a church and unpack these, these phrases. So we're going to do that today with the phrase gospel-centered. What do we mean by this? Let me give you two propositions, and then we'll unpack and and work through these with some scripture. First, the gospel is the central focus of scripture and of all of God's grand eternal plans for his creation. So the gospel is central in this way, that it is the central central to God's work in his world and his purposes for his world. Secondly, the gospel is the life-giving and empowering center of the people of God. So the second way the gospel is central is that it is, it is to be, it is intended to be central, the life-giving and empowering center of the lives of God's people. So first, let's... Let's work through these. The gospel is the central focus of scripture and the whole of God's plan for creation. Now, this is not hard to see. There are many places we could go in scripture to see this. I'll just give you a couple. Mark 1, Jesus himself. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, so whatever the gospel is, uh, he's, he's giving some indication here. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus clearly says that this gospel, and we'll explain what that is here in a minute, is a fulfillment of the time, the coming of a kingdom of God. All that God has been doing, sovereignly working, 
in ordaining the course of history. All that God had promised and prophesied and was working towards is coming to fulfillment in this gospel. Another, another passage, another place we see this, Romans 1.16, Paul's famous, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then, and also to the Greek. So this gospel, says Paul, is the very power of God to save those who believe. We want to know, most people want to know, where can we find power in this life? Where, can, where is the power of God located? Where is the power for a changed life? And the answer, ultimately, is in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God. God works and creates and changes and accomplishes his purposes through the gospel. All right. What then is the gospel? What is this thing? To that, uh, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. So I said we're not continuing our series in 1 Corinthians. We actually are continuing in 1 Corinthians, just not in order. Um, so this is, will mostly be in this passage today. So first four verses of 1 Corinthians 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you unless you believed in vain. And then Paul gives a very uh, succinct summary of the gospel. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And Paul here is just echoing what Jesus himself taught in Luke 24, after uh, his death and resurrection, Jesus said, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations, in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Now, if we were to sum up this and, and other, what other passages have to say about the gospel, it would be something like this. It is a message about what God has done by his own initiative, leading to forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God and eternal life with God that must be believed by faith. Let me walk through that with you. First, the gospel is a message. Perhaps you have heard that the word gospel or the word that we get the word gospel from means good news. The central thrust of Christianity, the heart of the, the message that God has for us, is an announcement. It is news to be proclaimed, something that people must hear in order to draw the benefits from. Uh, Paul preached it to the Corinthians. Jesus said that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed to all nations. This is the part of the reason that we preach Words hold a central part to who we are and what we do as a church, that we gather to hear and discuss the word of God. There's a word of God that must be heard. Secondly, it's a message about what God has done by his own initiative. Unlike every other religion, the heart of Christianity is not a message about what we must do to get to God. Yes, there are many commands in Scripture, and they have a place, and 
they are connected to the gospel in some way, but the gospel, the heart of the message that God is proclaiming to the world is not a command, is not a piece of advice, is not some new teaching on how we should live our lives. It is an announcement about God, who he is, and what he has done for us. John 3.16 is justly, a, justly famous. It is a great summary of what God has done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God, because of the love with, with which, which he had for the world, though it, though we justly stood condemned, came into the world in the person of Jesus, fully God, fully man, and though he had committed no sin and was, had no reason to experience any judgment deserved by sin, took our sin and judgment on himself. He became sin for us. And we didn't initiate this. We didn't do anything to move God into action. We weren't doing so well that God was moved to help us. We are told that God did this while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies. The gospel is the account of the initiating, undeserved love of God moving into action for our sake. What we would have you hear week in and week out as we come together and, and through various other ways is not here's what you need to do to get God's attention or to see or increase his blessings in your life or to force him to treat you kindly. No. What we would have you hear is here's what God has already done for you if you would behold it. Here's what God is proclaiming that you might turn to him. Salvation is already accomplished before you even realized your need for it. The next part of this, the gospel is a message about what God has done by his own initiative, leading to forgiveness of sin and reconciliation and eternal life with God. So the first part or the, the pre message of the gospel message is that you and I and all of humanity are sinners before God and justly deserving his just judgment. We all know John 3.16, but it is immediately followed by a statement of our condition apart from Christ if we do not believe. So verses 17 and 18, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We are condemned because the wages of sin is death. We cannot overstate the evilness and vileness of sin. It is a cosmic rebellion. Every sin we commit is an act of rebellion against our creator God. And, and it's serious is not just measured by its results, what comes of it, which sometimes we think are not that serious, but also by who it is against. We are rebelling against our perfect, holy, pure, 
and just God. An example might be helpful. Take the sin of anxiety, which we are all guilty of probably every day. It is so common that perhaps we don't really think of it as a sin. It's just a fact of life. And certainly it's not always a willful sin. There are various factors that can lead to anxiety, including chemical factors. However, Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life. Why? Well, because your heavenly father knows what you need and he is good. So when we are anxious, what is happening? We are believing, at least in that instance, that God cannot be trusted. That God does not see, does not care, perhaps is not good enough or powerful enough enough to be trusted. Rather, I need to take things into my own hands. I need to look out for myself. I need to see that my needs are provided for, at least put the pressure on myself to try. And I will ignore God's good rule over the world and over my life and seek to do my own thing, go my own way. In this instance, at least, I will be God. Whatever we claim to believe in that moment, our anxiety reveals that at some, somewhere in our heart or in our mind, there is a crevice of disbelief in God. Somewhere in us, we believe a lie. We believe a lie about God, and then we communicate this lie about God. And this is the essence of sin, to believe and communicate a lie about God's character. And the reason we don't think it's a big deal is part of the result of sin as well. We don't think God is that glorious. We don't think how we act and think about him matters that much. However, the message of the gospel is that the reality of sin, the seriousness of sin, the condemnation God justly brings on sinners because of their sin is not the last word, is not the end of the story, is not the full picture of the heart of God. That's not where the character of God stops. And if it is, we equally get him wrong. The message of the gospel is that sinners, who it is true, whose sin is ugly and vile and serious and deserving of condemnation, are exactly those whom God most delights to receive and forgive and bless. If only they would grasp the gift of Christ and him crucified. And this leads to the last part, our response. This message about what God has done must be believed by faith. If you look through the 76 uses of the word gospel in, in the New Testament, you will see that it is frequently connected to faith or belief or trust. And this is because the gospel is a message not about what we must do to get to God, but what he has already done and accomplished in the death of his son on the cross and because of this, the only right response, the only way to have these benefits applied to us is by faith. By simply acknowledging that Jesus has done this for me and it is sufficient. That we do not and cannot add anything to this. 
that we cannot in any way contribute to our salvation. To add anything, any other requirement would be to change the message of the gospel. If you, if you say salvation is of the Lord, but you also need to get your act together. Clean up your life. Feel this bad about your sins. Keep up a level of morality or religious living. Then salvation is not entirely of the Lord. It's partly on you. And that is an anti-gospel. The whole point of the gospel, as we saw earlier in 1 Corinthians, is that it removes, removes all room for human boasting. All room for trust and confidence in yourself. And directs all glory and boasting and trust to the Lord. When we see the hopelessness of our condition apart from Christ, and we see all that God has done and what he has gone through to rectify that condition and draw us to himself, we are led to boast, to rejoice in, to make much of, to live our lives for the Lord. And this leads to the second proposition, the second way that the gospel is central, that the gospel is and is to be the life-giving and empowering center of the people of God. So consider the first couple verses of that 1 Corinthians 15 passage. Now I'd remind you, brothers, so he's reminding them, these, these believers, of the gospel which I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul is reminding the Corinthians, who have already heard and responded to the gospel, of the gospel. Perhaps we can tend to think that the gospel is, is this thing for the, the beginning of the Christian life, that we hear, believe, are saved, and then move on from but Paul here and throughout of his letters is constantly turning believers' attention back to these gospel truths as if they still had relevance for their lives. Uh, specifically, look at what he says here. This gospel in which you stand and by which you are being saved that you must hold fast to. So if you are in Christ by faith, you stand in the gospel. The gospel gives you an identity, a position, a security, a hope. You are defined by who Christ is to you because of the gospel. You are a child of God through the costly grace of God. And that never changes you don't start out as a child of God by grace, but then keep your place there by your effort and earning. You don't stand in the grace of God at the beginning, but then stand in your own merits and work and, and, and all of this. No, the cross is continually the ground and the root of your position. This is part of the thinking behind the name of our church, Roots Church, that we are continually rooted and connected and entwined with the gospel in our lives. Furthermore, there is this still being saved aspect to this. The gospel is continuing to work powerfully in your life. It's not a momentary blip, a decision you made, and then you continue on with your life. No, 
God's grace saves you and God's grace changes you. The, the cross objectively saves you, but then subjectively changes you. And part of the way it does that is as we continually continue to remember and rehearse and lean on the gospel in which we stand. As we remember our position in Christ because of Christ, not because of how we're doing on any given day. Tim Keller puts this well. He says, the gospel is therefore radically different from religion. Religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. But the gospel operates on the principle, I am accepted through Christ, therefore I obey. A lack of deep belief in the gospel is the main cause of spiritual deadness, fear, and pride in Christians. Because our hearts continue to act on the basis, I obey, therefore I am accepted. So what does this actually look like? Tangibly, how do we live gospel-centered lives? What does it look like for everything to flow out of, to be motivated and empowered by what God has already accomplished for us in Jesus? Well, think about a few areas of your life. When it comes to worship, whether through song, through devotion, through gathering with God's people, studying God's word, prayer, you worship not to direct God's attention to you a little bit more or get him to bless you a little bit more, but because all God already loves and welcomes you as much as he ever will in Christ. Same thing with obedience. You obey God's commands and you seek to glorify him in, in your life, not to stave off his judgment, but because his judgment is already removed in the gift of Jesus. He first loved you. He initiated and called you to his love before you ever thought to love him. When it comes to loving others, you don't love others to gain a position over them or to get them to earn, to get them to owe you something. And you don't love others merely because you ought to, and that's what Christians should do. You love others because God has loved you when you didn't deserve it. And you love others, whether they, they deserve it or not. In, in everything we do in our lives, in our work, in our school, in our parenting, in our recreation, in our building a business, we aren't merely trying to secure a happy and pain-free life to build our own little kingdoms here on this earth. We are seeking to bring glory to the God who at great cost to himself, but because of his love for us, gave himself to make us his beloved child and will dwell with us for all eternity. In evangelism, that is, in, in sharing the gospel of others to, to others, we, we don't do this merely because we ought to or to get others to think and act like us and make us to feel better about ourselves. We do this as a natural response to hearing and receiving this good news. That's what you do with good news. You share it. And so what all of this means is that if we are going to live faithful lives to God, if we are going to live as we were meant to in every waking second of our lives, not just at church, not just in 
religious ways. We need to continually come back to and remember and rehearse and root ourselves in the gospel. Who God already is to us in Christ. This truth in which we stand, by which we are being saved and changed. And so part of our purpose, a big part of our purpose as a church, is to help you in this. As we choose songs to sing, as we preach, as we plan small group studies, as we counsel and, and disciple, as we just gather informally in people's homes and get coffee with one another, we are continually trying to let everything be informed by, grounded in, motivated and compelled by the truths of the gospel. Tangibly, that means we want to say over and over again, here's who you are. Here's what is already true about you in the gospel. Here's who God is to you in the gospel. And because of that, live this way. In everything, boast and make much of him. Make much of God who initiated your salvation. We never want to merely say, change, be a different person. Stop doing those things. Do these things. Be more religious. Stop sinning. Then God will love you. No. There, there are no mere commands. There are no abstract commands as a Christian that are just, you should do these things. Everything flows out of the prior work of God and the character of God and is empowered by that. To quote John again, we love because he first loved us. The reason we love and obey and worship is because he first loved us. And in his love, he died so that, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, we might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was raised. The intent of the gospel is to create us to be people and to motivate and compel us and empower us to be people who live for God. Not just take care of some spiritual duties in our life, but to be people who willingly, joyfully live our lives for worship, enjoy, and obey God in everything. I'm sure we could just continue to state that over and over again in many different ways, and that's kind of part of what we try to do. You realize that in every song we sing, essentially, that's there. We are rehearsing it, speaking it to ourselves, and responding. So we'll do that. We'll do that in communion, which again is a very tangible reminder of the gospel. We'll do that as we sing a few more songs. And then we encourage you to do that to yourself, speak that, and remind one another of that um, as you have opportunity. Let's pray.